You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is printed in your bulletin. Today we're continuing our series in the letter called 1 Timothy. And the, the series that I've, uh, the, the title that I've given to the series is Gospel Culture in God's Household. Gospel Culture in God's Household. Culture, as we saw last week, is defined as follows. Culture means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. It's what a group of people living in community do together because of what they believe together. Every community has its own culture. It could be a community as large as the nation of Canada or as small as a household. It could be an ethnic community. It could be a religious community. It could be a virtual community that centers around a common um, passion about a video game. The power of culture is that it reveals what a community values and believes even when those values and beliefs are not articulated. They're not made clear. Now, if you ever find yourself in the grave misfortune of being in a room full of lawyers, I guarantee you that it won't take long for you to discern what those people value and love. Now, this is just general statements. There are exceptions, of course. But I've had the sad misfortune of being in many rooms full of lawyers over the years. And as you listen to conversations, you listen to what they talk about, who their heroes are, what their best memories were, what their lowest moments were, it becomes crystal clear that what they value is their career and their reputation. The question for us as a community of Christians is, when people observe our lives and when they listen to our conversations, what conclusions do they make about what we value, what we prioritize in life? Do we just seem like the rest of the world, except we happen to sing songs and read the Bible? Or are we something else? Now, there ought to be something radically different about us, because really, we aren't just a religious community of people. We are a community of sinners that has been powerfully transformed by the gospel. And that is meant to have a profound impact on how we live, how we treat one another, how we speak to one another and speak about one another. It's meant to have a profound impact on our church culture. So that even before someone who has walked into our doors hears the gospel proclaimed from this pulpit, they would know with crystal clear certainty what we value as a community. They should be able to to see that we do not live for our own good, but for the good of others. They should be able to see that our hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. They should be able to see that we do not live to bring glory and honor to ourselves, but glory and honor to the one who saved us. That's what this series is about. It's about creating a gospel culture that flows out of our gospel Doctrine as we function together in God's household. That's, that's language that is taken from this letter itself. First Timothy 3 verse 15 says, um, this letter is all about how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now that is a sobering 
an amazing analogy for the church. We are the household of God. And that means that the culture that we have and the values that that culture represents isn't just meant to reflect what we value. It's meant to reflect what God values. This is God's household. He is our father. That's not me. I am not your spiritual father. God is our father. We together are his children. And as our father, he has the prerogative to decide what our culture is meant to look like, how we are to behave in his household. And the kind of culture he wants in his household is one that is gospel-centered. And that is not easy. In fact, it is impossible to cultivate a gospel culture apart from the supernatural work of God. God himself is needed to put his culture into his church. And he shows us how he wants to do that in 1 Timothy. And we saw last Sunday that there are two foundational rules in God's household. Every household has its own rules, and in God's household, it begins with two foundational rules, the rule of truth and the rule of love, that what is taught in God's household has to accord with sound doctrine as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. The Bible is our ultimate authority. That's the rule of truth. If I start speaking apart from what the Bible has revealed to us about who God is, who we are, and what God has done to save us, I have violated the first rule in God's household. But the second rule, the rule of love, is that everything that we do, all our study, all of our listening to God's word, all of our singing, is meant to promote an increased love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And so we could go home from these Sunday services with greater theological knowledge greater awareness of how to defend sound doctrine, if we have not love, then we've missed the whole point. The rule of truth and the rule of love. Truth that produces love and love that flows out of truth. That is what God's household starts with. Today, we look at the next building block that we need to cultivate a gospel culture. What we're going to see is it involves Developing and understanding how the law applies in the life of the church. Now, by the law, we don't mean uh, Canadian laws. We don't mean ancient Roman laws, which would have been the civil laws that bound uh, the church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. No, we mean the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, The Torah. Uh, How does the law How does the law as summarized in the Ten Commandments apply to the life of the church? This is a crucial issue. It's a crucial issue. It may seem kind of academic and theoretical, but it's not. This is a crucial issue, and it lies at the heart of what it means to become a gospel culture in God's household. So let's read our text today. I'm going to be reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Verses 5 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make 
confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The title of this sermon is Laying Down the Law. Laying Down the Law. My aim today is to show you that believers need to lay down the law. Unbelievers need the law laid down on them. Now that is somewhat provocative. Uh, It'll make more sense as we work our way through the text. Believers need to lay down the law. Unbelievers need the law laid down on them. We're gonna have three points today. First, the law's danger. Second, the law's purpose. And third, the law's fulfillment. The law's danger, the law's purpose, and the law's fulfillment. First, the law's danger. Now remember the context. Paul is instructing Timothy, whom he calls in verse two, his true child in the faith. He's instructing him on how to pastor his first church, the church at Ephesus. Now these two men, Paul and Timothy, were close. They were as close as a father and his son. They traveled together, they preached the gospel together, they suffered persecution together, and, and, but all that changed when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus while he continued on to Macedonia. The reason, we'll look at verse three. So that Timothy could charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. False teaching was spreading in the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul planted, a church that Paul started, and Paul wanted this false false teaching to stop. And the way that he tries to do that is by leaving his young protege to deal with the false teaching. Now the issue for Paul wasn't just the presence of false teaching. It was what the false teaching was doing. It was keeping the church from growing in what he thinks what he says is the most important thing for the church to grow in, love. In verse 5, Paul writes, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Love, love, my friends, is to be the defining characteristic of a Christian community. Love that issues from truth. Not just a sentimental love that comes and goes. So I love you now, I don't love you tomorrow. You know, just as a side, my my son Benjamin, who's three years old, um, he is so fickle in his love. You know, one day he'll, actually not just one day, one moment he'll be like, Daddy, I love you. I'm like, oh, thanks, Benjamin. And he's like, Daddy, I don't love you. I love mommy. He, he loves to just tug at my heartstrings. His, his love right now in his immaturity is fickle. This is not the kind of love we're talking about. This is steadfast love. This is love that endures. This is love that doesn't give up. This is love that pursues when the beloved flees. It is a love rooted in the sound doctrine of the gospel in what Christ has done for us in the love that Christ has demonstrated for us. That's one of the reasons why false teaching is so dangerous. It undermines the distinct 
characteristic of the Christian community, which is love. But what were these false teachers teaching? Well, the answer is found in verses 6 and 7, where Paul says certain persons, by swerving from these, that is, the truth of the gospel and the love that issues from the gospel, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law. Okay, so what they're teaching is the law. They want to be teachers of the law, and they're teaching the law in some way that Paul is really disturbed by that, so disturbed by he, by, that he would leave his young protege, Timothy, um, to go pastor this church. Now, this, this term, the law, as I have already mentioned, refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. And they're called the law because they contain a lot of rules. Rules about civil life that the nation of Israel was to observe together as they uh, function in community. Um, Personal rules, private rules as individuals in that nation, how they are to treat one another. And ceremonial rules um, that govern their life as a religious people. The essence of those laws is, of course, captured in the Ten Commandments. But that raises a further question. And this is a good question. If these people are teaching the law, and the law was part of the Christian scriptures, part of the Christian heritage, then why would Paul call it different doctrine in verse 3? Or why would he call it vain discussion in verse 6? Aren't they teaching what they're supposed to be teaching? When we talk about the Ten Commandments, am I guilty of vain discussion? Or teaching a different doctrine? Well, the answer to these questions is, is yes and no. Yes, they are doing what they're supposed to do because the law is part of the Christian scriptures, but no, they are also not doing what they're supposed to be doing because they were teaching the law in the wrong way. And when the law is taught in the wrong way, the church crumbles. You can picture the law as a hammer. A hammer, if used properly, can build up. But if the law is used improperly, it tears down. It all depends on how you use it. Paul implies that these teachers are using the law in the wrong way, in a way that would tear down. In verse 8, he writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He then explains what that is. We'll look at that in our second point. But the reason why he talks about the lawful use of the law is because these false teachers were engaged in the unlawful use of the law. They were applying it in a way that was counterproductive to the gospel and to the production of love in the community. So what did that look like? Well, it looked like law without gospel. It looked like rules without Christ. According to these teachers, the law was meant to be the central feature of religious life in the church. Really, there was no difference, no material difference between Jewish religious life and Christian religious life. It was all meant to center around rules, around laws, around obedience, Now, this is what we could call legalism. Legalism. And legalism is what most people outside the church assume the church is all about. It's about keeping rules. It's about doing religious things. It's about building up enough good works in your bank account with God that you earn his favor. What Paul's saying here, that's not what the church is about. He's saying that's false teaching that is dangerous to the life of the church. That's the wrong way of looking at the law. And if you build a church on that foundation, that church will 
crumble. Why is it dangerous? Why is it so dangerous? After all, it's, it's a Bible, right? It reveals a commitment to the scriptures. They're just trying to teach the Bible. What's, what's dangerous about it? Well, it is dangerous because it is, it, it is utterly unable, listen, it is utterly unable to fulfill the aim of Paul's charge, which is love. Love is meant to be the distinguishing characteristic of the church. But the law cannot create that. The law can't produce the kinds of people who love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Those are all things that are inside a person. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And the law cannot reach into someone and transform them. All the law does is show a man what he must become, but it gives him no power to do it. So if a church spends all its time on the law, do this, don't do this, do this on this day, but don't do this on that day, it's never going to become a community of love. The church was meant to be built upon the foundation of Christ and him crucified, the saving work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who took our sins upon himself to die for us and to propitiate God's wrath so that we could be born again to new life. That is the one foundation that the church was meant to be built on. And any other foundation will lead the church to crumble. And that is why we must spend ourselves on the gospel, building our church on the gospel. Because unlike the law, the gospel does have power to reach into our inner being, to purify our hearts, to cleanse our conscience, to give us the gift of sincere faith. It has the power to make us new men and new women, to recreate us by this new, better word of the gospel, to transform us into people who don't just need to conform to an external law outside of ourselves, but into a people who have the law written on our hearts, a people who don't just need to obey the law, but want to obey the law. That is why the gospel is so central to the life of a church. Now at this point, many of you are probably thinking, well, good thing I'm not a legalist, or good thing our church isn't legalistic. Well, are you sure about that? Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, especially when it comes to legalism. Now listen, Sinclair Ferguson in his monumental book, The Whole Christ, writes this. Legalism is a much more subtle reality than we tend to assume. It is a primary, if not the ultimate, pastoral problem. Oh, wait a second, Dr. Ferguson. How can that be? Isn't legalism just as simple as if a church emphasizes rules Laws without the gospel, that's a legalistic church. And a church that talks about the gospel a lot and is interpreting the law through the lens of the gospel, that's not a legalistic church? Well, no, it's not that simple. Here's Ferguson's definition of legalism. I believe this is biblically accurate and profoundly helpful. He writes, legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. 
Legalism is separating the law of God from the person of God. Let me illustrate. This is Ferguson's illustration from what happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember what happened in Eden. God gave Adam and Eve one rule, one law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. That was their law to which they were meant to conform. In a world of vast permission, eat of any tree in the garden except this one, there was one prohibition. Don't eat from this one tree. Now why didn't Adam and Eve obey that one law? Was it because the fruit just looked so tasty that they had to grab it and and sink their teeth into it? Was it because Satan was just too cunning? Well, no. It was ultimately because when they considered God's command, they lost sight of God's heart. You know, when you look at the narrative, the snake tried all sorts of strategies to lead Adam and Eve into sin. He challenged the clarity of God's word. Did God actually say He challenged the authority of God's word. You will not surely die. But the final nail in the coffin was a challenge to the goodness of God's word. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That is the essence of legalism. It's believing the lie that God gave us laws. God gave us rules, not to protect us, not to bless us, Not to increase our joy, not as an expression of his goodness to us, but because he's holding back. He's jealous of us. He he doesn't want us to experience all the goodness of life that we would have if we would just break free from his laws. Legalism is separating the law of God from the person of God. When we consider the law and the person of God together, we know that the law is good. We can say like the psalmist in Psalm 19, the the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul because we know that God is generous and he wants to revive our souls. But we don't consider them together. When When we look at what we could call the naked law, rather than hearing it from the lips of our generous, gracious father, we have fallen into legalism. John Calvin puts it this way. They who depart from the gospel do not adhere to the spirit of the law but merely pursue its shadow. You know, when we obey God, not out of joyful submission, but out of grumbling and complaining, that's legalism. When we fantasize about what life could be like, if we could just do what we wanted and not do what God wanted, that is legalism. When we read God's word and think, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. Because if it were not in the Bible, I would be so much happier. That is legalism. When people leave the church because they believe that the the commands that God gives us in Holy Scripture are unduly restricting their lives and depriving them of true happiness and satisfaction. They leave the church. That is, my friends, that is legalism. Legalism is a much more subtle reality than we tend to assume. And it is far more dangerous than we realize because it subtracts and diminishes the loving character of a Christian community called a church. Gospel culture is impossible apart from a right understanding and application of the law in the life of the church. 
So if that's the unlawful use of the law, what is its lawful use? If that's the wrong way of applying it, what's the right way? That leads to our second point, the law's purpose. Now, Paul knows that his argument in verses six and seven could easily be misunderstood. He's talking about how the law is dangerous, how the law should not be taught to the extent and with the quality of these teachers in the church at Ephesus. Uh, He could easily be misunderstood as saying, well, the law is therefore irrelevant or useless or even evil. And that's why he writes verses eight to 11. He wants to clarify that the law is good. It has its purpose. And he's about to explain how it is meant to be used lawfully. What is the lawful use of the law? Paul explains in verse nine. He says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, Paul is clearly saying there's two categories of people, the just and the lawless and disobedient. The law is not for the just, and the law is for the lawless and disobedient. So who are in these two categories? Now, one possible interpretation is that all of us, without exception, including faithful Christians, part of a faithful church, fall in the category of the lawless and disobedient. Because after all, we're all sinners. We know when we ask ourselves honestly, have we conformed to the law perfectly? No, we haven't. Have we obeyed God perfectly? No, we haven't. We are all lawless and disobedient. And so this argument would say, none of us are in the just category. All of us are in the lawless and disobedient category, which would mean that the law is for all of us. We need more law. That's what it would mean. But that's the opposite of what Paul is arguing in the context. He's saying the church needs less law. If the church has more law, then you've undermined the Christian character of the church. That's clearly not what Paul means. He's not lumping everyone together without exception, including Christians in the category of the lawless and disobedient. It is fairly fairly clear then that what Paul means is that the law is primarily for unbelievers and not believers. Believers are the just. They have been justified by faith in Christ and now because of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, they desire what is just. They've become a new person in Christ, a new man and a new woman with new desires. The law is not for Christians. That's fairly clear here. This isn't something new, okay? Paul consistently teaches about, uh, across his many letters, that Christ has changed the way that Christians relate to the law. Galatians chapter three. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that we have responded to Christ's saving work with faith, we are no longer under a guardian, a guardian called the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Similarly, Romans 7, verse six. But now, now that we are in Christ, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. My friends, if you are a Christian today, if your trust is in Christ as your savior, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose on the third day to justify you and to prove that he is the son of God, 
And that he was, before all of that, he was the eternal son of God who came, sent by the Father to redeem us from our sins. My friends, if that is you, the law is not for you. You are free from the law. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't read the Ten Commandments. And that doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from the book of Leviticus. We obviously can, but the way that we read it and the way that we apply it is completely different than we would have if we were apart from Christ because we serve, as Paul says, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. But for those who are not yet Christians, those who are apart from Christ, they are not free from the law. They are still under its captivity, under its guardianship. Now, this doesn't just apply to Jewish people. The Jewish people would be like, yeah, I mean, the law is part of our holy scriptures. We believe that. We submit to it. I mean, the church at Ephesus was made up of Jews and Gentiles. You just need to read the book of Acts to see that. Paul's talking to a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience and saying, it's for the lawless and disobedient, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religious background. The law is for the lawless and disobedient. Now this is something that we desperately need to hear because it is the opposite of what we tend to think about the law. Most of you probably have, like me, a non-Christian friend. Someone who's not following Christ, who doesn't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and you, you watch their lives and they do something wrong. They do something that contradicts the moral standard in the scriptures. And you reason, well, they're not a Christian yet, so how can I expect them to live like a Christian? Or they don't believe that the Bible is God's word, so how can I point them to God's word? Uh, you know, what I should do right now is give them grace, not law. And grace is going to win them to Christ. And once they're one to Christ, then I'll give them law. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying in these verses. We say that the law is for believers, not unbelievers. Paul says that the law is for unbelievers, not for believers. Clearly one of us is wrong. And guess what? We're wrong. This isn't just Paul writing. It is God writing. And we need this word of correction. I understand the impulse behind giving unbelievers grace and not law. It's hard to give them law. It's hard to talk about how they are morally departing from God's revealed will. And on one level, it doesn't seem to make sense. One popular Canadian pastor and author put it this way in a blog that he wrote a few years earlier. He's commenting on uh, the American trend, a more recent trend of of legalizing same-sex marriage, and he's reflecting as a Canadian who has uh, uh, lived in a culture that has had same-sex marriage for uh, many years. He writes this, Why would we expect people who don't profess to be Christians to wait until marriage to have sex, clean up their language, stop smoking weed, be faithful to one person for life, pass laws like the entire nation was Christian. Seriously, why? Most people today are not pretending to be Christian, so why would they adopt Christian values or morals? Well, the answer is because God expects them to. God doesn't have one moral standard for Christians and another one for non-Christians. He has one standard for all, Christian or not, and he wants all people, regardless of religious belief, to know that standard 
and to live by it. Now, intuitively, I think many of us know this. If you had this, like, take this theoretical, hypothetical, non-Christian friend, say you noticed a pattern of chronic deception and lying in their lives, I think you would say something. I think you would, out of love for your friend, you would say, man, the, the choices that you're making, they're destructive, and it's not right to deceive those who are around you. You would say that to your friend. Or if your friend started talking about how they wanted to kill someone, you wouldn't be thinking, well, I'm not going to say anything because they're not a Christian, and it's not fair to hold them to a Christian standard. You would say something. And what you would say isn't just, well, it's illegal, and if you did that, you'd go to jail for a long time. No, you'd say, that's wrong. That's evil. You can't do that. The issue then is not that we are afraid of talking about morality with our unbelieving friends. That's not the issue here. The issue is that we're not willing to talk about certain categories of morality. And the category of morality that we are most hesitant to talk about is our culture's sacred cow, sexuality. Whether you're talking about sex outside marriage or same-sex marriage, talking about people's personal sexual choices is seen as not only off-limits, but offensive. Now the question is, can't we just talk about some moral issues like lying and murder and not others that are intensely personal like sexual choices? The easy ones rather than the hard ones? Well, Paul, he just doesn't leave us that option. In verses nine to 10, he runs through a list of sins that includes profanity, parental abuse, murder, sexual immorality, homosexuality, slavery, and lying. If you, if you think carefully about this list, you'll see that it actually somewhat parallels the Ten Commandments. Unholy likely refers to the breaking of the first two commandments regarding worship. Profane refers to taking the Lord's name in vain as prohibited by the third commandment. Strike their fathers and mothers refers to the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Murderers, sixth commandment, do not murder. Sexual immorality um, refers to the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Enslavers, which, by the way, means those who steal people from their homes and sells them into slavery, um, refers to the eighth commandment to not steal. Liars and perjurers, the ninth commandment to not bear false witness. Paul's point here is that the entire law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, applies to both Christians and non-Christians. The entire law applies to the lawless and disobedient. Not just murder and lying, but sexuality. Honoring parents, godly speech. Everything God requires of Christians, he requires of non-Christians as well. Now you might think, this would be a legitimate question, what's the point in giving non-Christians law when they're powerless to keep the law? Well, first I would say that's not quite true. Non-Christians may be powerless to keep the law perfectly, but that doesn't mean that they are completely unable to keep the law. And we know that Jesus defined murder as encompassing angry thoughts in your mind of hatred towards your brother. Okay, A non-Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit, without a regenerate heart, would not be able to keep that law. But they would be able to keep the law to not murder. Part of the law's function is to restrain evil. And it does that by telling people what God commands and what the consequences are of breaking those commands. But the other thing that we must realize, my other response to this objection, would be that being powerless 
is precisely the point of the law. That's why God gave us the law. It's so that all of us, without exception, would know that we are so fallen, we are so sinful, our hearts are so hardened that none of us, by the sheer strength of our will, can obey God's laws, can conform to God's revealed will. We need something outside of ourselves to act upon us, to change who we are. The law reveals sin by acting like a mirror that we look into so that we can finally see how far we have fallen from the glory of God. If we do not do that for the unbelieving world, how will they know that they are sinners? How will they know that they, are, they have fallen short of God's standards? How will they know of their need for a savior? Have we fallen into the trap of busying ourselves with giving grace without explaining why they need grace in the first place? The world needs the law in order to know that it needs a savior. That's the law's purpose. Lastly, the law's fulfillment. And more briefly, Paul ends this list of lawless and disobedient categories of people who need the law with this interesting statement. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's saying the the law is for murderers, the law is for liars, and the law is for those who do whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now this is interesting because up to this point, Paul's been contrasting sound doctrine with the law. He's been saying, if you teach the law, in the wrong way, you're teaching unsound doctrine. But here he's, he's saying that the, that the things that are contrary to the law are also contrary to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine agrees that it is wrong to be unholy and profane. To, sound doctrine agrees that it is wrong to strike your father and, and mother and to murder, etc. There is no opposition between sound doctrine and the law. They are consistent. They are friends and not foes. Now, this shows us that Paul's concern was never with the law in itself. Paul's concern was with how the law was being taught in the church. For the Christian, there is a way of reading, understanding, and applying the law that is not contrary to sound doctrine, but rather flows out of sound doctrine. Paul shows us how to do that in verse 11, where he writes, uh, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, Christians are to read, understand, and apply the law through a gospel framework. The gospel is not inconsistent with the law, so long as the law is understood in light of the gospel. Without a gospel framework, we respond to the law in one of two ways. We think, well, this is, this is what I have to do. I'm going to do it by sheer force of my own willpower. That leads to self-righteousness. That leads to pride. That leads to hypocrisy. Or we could think, well, I could never do that. I'm hopeless, and that leads to condemnation and guilt and hopelessness. The gospel gives us a better way of reading the law. It allows us to look at the law and say, Christ has died for my failures to uphold the law. Christ has fulfilled the law on my behalf, and now Christ gives me the strength to obey the law. And the wonderful thing about how we seek obedience to the law now in Christ because of the gospel is we can pursue obedience without fear of condemnation. When we look at the law without Christ, we are under God's 
judgment because we fail and we see how far short we fall. But when we are in Christ and we know that Christ has died for our sins and he has satisfied its requirements on our behalf, we can pursue obedience without fear of condemnation because Christ has borne our condemnation for us. Now, I'm going to close with a word of application to one particular category of people here. And I'm preaching this just as much to myself as I am to those who fall in this category. I want to leave us with a word of application to apply to those who are parents of young children. Now, in recent years, there's been a lot of helpful resources on gospel-centered parenting. These resources have been a tremendous blessing to Nina and to me and to our family, as I'm sure they have been to many of you. These books have helped us to see that we don't just want to change behavior, we want to change hearts. And the only way to change hearts is through the message and power of the gospel. But my concern here is that we can start giving our children too much gospel and not enough law. If anyone is lawless and disobedient, it's children. Children need the law. The law is for children. You know, we we can take a lesson from history here. If we look at the Westminster Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, theological documents that would have been part of the daily education of children in uh, England and in the Netherlands, and we see how both documents, the Heidelberg and the Westminster, have a careful and thorough explanation, not just of the gospel, but of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. We realize that they got something that we don't get. They saw that children need not just grace, they need law. Our children need the law. They need the law to teach them to respect authority. They need the law to teach them to fear the Lord. God isn't just their friend. God is their master. They need the law to reveal their sin to them so that they would know that they need Jesus. You know, I often ask my kids the question, what area of sin are you most struggling in right now? And most of the time, my kids will respond by, I don't know. No, I'm good with God. That reveals to me that I have not brought them the law like I should. The law is for the lawless and disobedient. We aren't doing our children any favors by withholding the law from them. We think we are. We think we're doing it right if we just keep giving them grace. And we need to give them grace always, even when we're giving them law. But when we don't give them law and only grace, we are doing them a massive disservice. The scriptures have told us that the law was laying down for them. So let's be faithful to do that. You might be wondering where to start. Well, we start with where God starts. What are God's commands in the Old Testament and the New towards children? It's honor your mother and your father. Or as Paul puts in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This, this command ought to be on our lips and pressed into our children's hearts every single day. Honor your parents, obey your mother and father, submit to your parents' authority. Now that may seem harsh and it may seem legalistic, 
But remember, legalistic legalism isn't just about talking about the law. It's about talking about the law separate apart from the person of God. We can talk about the law in a way that brings them to the grace that God has shown to us in Christ in completely unique ways than if we just gave them grace. Now, this is not easy because we are all legalists at heart, at least to some degree. And legalists produce more legalists. We teach the law wrongly because we apply the the law wrongly to ourselves. And so we need two things if we're going to do this right. First, we need a vibrant spiritual life. We need to be able to look into the law of the Lord and see grace and see God's gracious invitation to receive more of his goodness and his fullness. We, we need to, to put together the law of God and the person of God so that when we look at the law, we would say, that's, that's good. I want that. The second thing we need is we need counselors. There is safety in an abundance of counselors. And I'm not talking about the counselors that you Google. The first people who come up on your Google searches who are posting their random thoughts. I'm talking about the wise, godly people around you. We are blessed as a church to have several older couples who have raised children from childhood to adulthood. That is a precious resource. They've seen it all. They've accumulated much wisdom. So ask them to share their experiences with you. Ask them to give you input. If we're going to cultivate a healthy gospel culture, we need to stop using the law unlawfully. And we need to start using the law lawfully. And by God's grace, we will do so with the help of the one who gave us the law for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, how we need the truth of your holy word to redirect us to right thinking and right living. We often pursue our own course of action because we are wise in our own eyes. But we are not. We are not wise. We need the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Christ Jesus himself, to change the way that we think and live under the law and in response to the law.